Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Lots to talk about this week. And joining me from Pennsylvania is Don Watkins. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna from Germany. Hello, Alex. Hey, guys. How's it going? So... Let's see. I was just doing the Dennis Prager show, which is a very popular radio show in the U.S., on the Green New Deal, which is a a big focus right now. So let me give some initial thoughts, and then I know, Stefan, you had some thoughts as well. The original New Deal was supposed to take the U.S. from a situation of mass unemployment to full employment. And it's notable that it completely failed in this respect, though that's another subject that Don certainly knows a lot about. But the purpose was to take America from a situation of mass unemployment and then poverty as well related, but to full employment. Now, at the moment, we have a situation of virtually full employment and a lot of prosperity. Now, there are plenty of economic concerns, particularly for me and I'm sure for Don, around things like our debt level, consuming more than we produce. But in, if we look at what has caused the current prosperity and employment opportunities, I can't think of any greater contributor than energy progress. And that has taken the form of, particularly with energy from oil and gas, uh, being produced more and more and more in the United States, particularly because of shale energy technology. Now, the root cause of shale energy technology is not just shale rock, which exists all over the world, but is what I would call a policy of energy freedom. The fact that the U.S. in many ways has the, the most freedom to find energy and develop it and produce it and then it has the freedom for consumers to choose what forms of energy are best. And in particular, in the realm of oil and gas, we have very strong property rights underground, which is a really unprecedented thing in the world and certainly unequaled thing in the world. So what we have is we have a situation where energy freedom has made possible energy progress and energy leadership that has done what the original New Deal couldn't, which is create a lot of prosperity and a lot of employment. So what does it mean to have a new New Deal, given that the energy freedom already accomplished what the New Deal was supposed to accomplish but couldn't? Well, it turns out what the Green New Deal is, is it's a policy to ban all of the forms of energy that have led to energy progress, including oil and gas, but in, also including coal and also nuclear, as I'll talk about in a minute. So it's, it's, a, it's a direct restriction on the very freedom that led to this prosperity. And then on top of that, it's, it's combining that restriction with socialism, with having the government own the energy economy and in particular, to try to mandate solar and wind-based energy, which, as I've talked about on this show, those are, the, those are forms of energy that are deeply plagued by reliability issues and that have never been able to scale to support a modern, modern energy system, whether a modern electricity system or any of the other major uses of energy, like mass heating and mass industrial energy and mass transportation. So... It's really this perverse thing because we already have this great thing of energy freedom, which can be improved, but it's still such a great baseline and it's leading to so much progress and flourishing. And then something calling itself the New Deal is taking away that freedom in, in the most insane way possible in the sense that it has no chance of accomplishing even what it says it's concerned with, which is lowering CO2 levels. I mean, it, it can do that, but it can, it can do that by just committing mass destruction. But there's no plausible way of lowering CO2 levels by mandating 
or trying to mandate energy technologies that that don't work. So my my short version of this is that the Green New Deal is a misnomer, and really what we're talking about here is a green Great Depression because the New Deal was supposed to get out of uh, get us out of a depression, but these are policies to get us into a depression. And I think that's what, what's really necessary for all of us is to recognize first and foremost how much of a positive energy freedom is and how much of a positive energy progress and more broadly how much of a, a positive material flourishing is. And then recognizing that champion improvements to energy freedom, improvements to energy progress, things like decriminalizing nuclear power, but be really clear on what we stand for positively. And then in that light, we can see that this policy is is just the combination. It's, it's the worst combination of environmental dogmatism, including anti-nuclear dogmatism, plus socialism, which means, you know, basically the deprivation of individuals and groups of people to uh, start and run private businesses. So it's, it's combining the worst elements of the environmental movement and the worst economic system, so to speak, ever, which is socialism. And so there should be no idealism around that. It's, it's, it's a truly scary kind of thing. But as I've talked about before, it's really important for us to be clear on what we stand for positively versus just poking holes in the Green New Deal. So the fundamental isn't that there's just one or two stupid things in it. It's that this is the morally and practically wrong direction because instead of expanding human freedom to make life better and solve problems, it's destroying human freedom. Now, Stefan, I know that you had some observations and thoughts. What's on your mind with the Green New Deal? Yeah, so a couple of things stood out to me. Um, one of it was uh, that the justification referenced the um, 2018 uh, UN IPCC report, the special report, uh, warming of 1.5 degrees C. And it, the language in the resolution was something like, oh, the UN IPCC says that we must go net zero emissions globally until the year 2050. And this is an example where, where this is not true. As much as I disagree with the report by the IPCC, it is it didn't have this uh, like one thing that needs to happen. It had a range of projections where they had kind of scenarios how to accomplish uh, the uh, um, temperature increase cap. And so it's just saying, well, we have this fixed goal and this is set in stone and that is what the scientists say and we need to accomplish that at any cost. And this is just a, a good example of how these you know, very lengthy reports by bodies like the IPCC are then abused, like even against what they are saying in detail. It's just a sweeping statement. Oh, by 2050, we must be zero. And uh, second point is a, just a time frame. So the, the resolution of the Green New Deal talks about a 10-year time frame of uh, American mobilization. The entire economy must be uh, overhauled in a way that this, uh, you know, 2050 phase out can actually happen. Um, and this is, of course, a very, very short time frame. If you think about how long something like a coal or natural gas power plant is supposed to run, this is decades, like 30, 40 years and more. Um, and then also this resolution goes into uh, not much into detail, but they are, going all over the place. For example, they call for um, efficiency gains in every home, every residential and industrial housing unit, and just uh, making that more efficient. And think about how long it took to uh, create all these housing units across America, like for 320 million people to be built over the decades. And, you know, in 10 years, this is supposed to, you know, exchange every window and every heating system and so on to, you know, have some gains in energy efficiency. And also, there are a lot of things that have nothing to do directly with climate change, 
the overarching goal of, of uh, reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, for example, the resolution talks about uh, pollution control and, uh, you know, good union wages in the economy that are supposed to be created and, you know, uh, social and environmental justice issues and so on. So it goes all over the place and sort of muddies the issue. And this is this is how exactly you don't accomplish anything. So if, if the goal is to reduce CO2 emissions, and that is sort of the, the centerpiece and the most important thing, because it's a sort of life-ending crisis for humanity, then you don't want to go all over the place and, you know, make enemies uh, on the political, uh, in the political theater by muddying this issue. Um, but there, I mean, their their view, which has a certain kind of coherence, is that the lack of socialism in the world is causing every problem in the world, including climate catastrophe. So there, there's a certain kind of now that that should really be challenged and examined because that's the opposite of of the truth. But you know, for example, with other things. You know, we could say something to the effect of, oh, well, it's it's freedom that th there are all of these problems in the world and a lack of freedom is at the core of them. And therefore, we need to create uh, policies that allow more political freedom and then that'll address all of these specific things. So their their view is, well, it's actually the the cause of all of these problems is freedom. And so what we really need to do is take control over every aspect of life and order everyone to obey in a way that we regard as justly, whether economically or environmentally, and then we will have uh, a very good world. Now, so it, it does, it's, it's important though that that is, they, they view this as one of many reasons to, or I would say pretexts for socialism but then that indicates, uh, to your point, I guess that indicates that they don't really regard this as particularly urgent because they're not they're not at all optimizing for the thing that most people think of as the reason to do any of this stuff. Well, now, Alex, that I mean that relates to the thing that's jumped out at me in the reactions to this, which is the reactions both from the left and even often the right is they'll say, look, this is not very realistic, but at least it's ambitious and we need to be ambitious. And ambition is not an unlimited virtue. Like it very much depends what you're ambitious for. If you're ambitious to like, hey, we're going to turn this shale rock that's been useless and that people think that could never be used to turn into practical energy, we're going to create technology and then offer it to the world and try to show that it's actually practical. Like that's very ambitious. And that's what's made all those jobs and prosperity you mentioned possible. But this ambition is a couple of politicians who their ambition is to take unprecedented power over the lives of the country and the only and if they're wrong like there's no opt out clause it's we're going to impose solar solar and wind on you we're going to deprive you of the energy technologies that you've chosen and that have allowed you to prosper and if we're wrong but it's not even addressed whether or not they're wrong and it's not like this is new that kind of ambition has been tried again and again i mean this is this is exactly the sort of ambition you saw with the great leap forward where it's, you know, China's going to transition into this great communist utopia and then people starved. It was the ambition of the Soviet Union that says, like, we are going to leap into the industrial future and millions of people starved. And it's uh, it, it, an even lesser form of ambition, which happened in Venezuela that now is leading to complete breakdown. And so the idea that there's something inherently idealistic about people proposing to take over massive amounts of the economy and control people's lives and that that should be considered virtuous, even if not practical, I find incredibly disturbing. Yeah, I like that point. And it's particularly bad because they they are so against the ambition and the results of the ambition of the people who are actually producing energy in the world. So that that's bad ambition. But yeah, the, the ambition to control other people is something that gets this perverse uh, 
this perverse approval and admiration. And then there are periods in history where it obviously leads to mass destruction and then people, they, they, they say that they don't admire it so much, but it seems to be at a point where, where people are in a society, they think things are wrong. They're blaming it on the elements of freedom in the society. And then they think, well, if only somebody like me had wider powers and then they think, oh, well, like you see the, for instance, people just idolizing China, you know, those Chinese, they can get things done. And it's, there's a little mini little Caesar, little dictator in a lot of people. And that can have a number of causes, but maybe one of the more innocent causes is just that uh, there's a lack of understanding of how freedom works to make people's lives better. And then how part of freedom is having laws that protect individual rights, that if you did have some sort of crisis with CO2, there would be ways of handling that by thinking of it in terms of individual rights, but you'd really think of it in terms of, okay, how do we, how do we prevent this particular alleged very negative consequence, but still give people the freedom that they need to flourish? So versus how do we take away, how do we use this problem? Uh, how can we use this? How can we deal with this problem and every other problem by taking control of everything. Now, Don, uh, what's, what stories do you, are you interested in this week? Um, well, you mentioned China. So the, this is a fascinating and really tragic story. This was reported in an, an English publication called South China Morning Post. And the title, um, and I recommend everybody will read it, and I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes, is As Winter Grips Rural China, Who's Really Paying the Price for Beijing's Clean Air Plan? And you definitely read the whole thing. It has a lot of very specific stories that I can't go into here, but the main thrust of it is how China, in order to combat a legitimate challenge that they're facing of smog, it's depriving people of coal and forcing them to use natural gas that's up to three times as expensive and often doesn't work at all. And this has left some of the poorest people there unable to heat their homes in the coldest parts of winter. And so just for example, one of the people profiled was forced to pay more than 10% of his annual income for his winter heating bill. So I mean, like you just do the math on what that would mean for your life. And I mean, this is, a, I think, an illustration of ex on a smaller scale of when you have an authoritarian government making decisions about how to cope with side effects of energy. Whereas what should happen in these kinds of cases, at least in my view, is that like this is exactly the sort of thing you want to leave to local control so that communities can decide for themselves, like, are we better off paying more for cleaner air? And as you're more and more prosperous, then the answer is more likely to be yes, versus are we better off having air that's not as good, but at least we are not freezing or spending a tenth of our income on winter heating? I mean, my understanding is that this, the way they're approaching it is very inelegant in that it just seems like they're mandating gas all over the place instead of, there, there's certainly ways you can make coal a lot cleaner. There's certain burning practices that are are better. Is that your impression? Right. I, I, it's not totally 100% clear exactly what's going on, but- the, but this is the whole issue of you'd want to think very carefully about like how do we best achieve this goal of cleaning the air versus we have this ambitious plan that's just going to get rid of the coal that everybody knows is bad and then complete indifference to the suffering of human beings who have to pay the price for it. One one point that this article, well, it doesn't make explicitly, but I think of when I read articles like this and really when I go anywhere cold is that you know the biggest climate problem is cold now drought might be an exception to that in in, in certain ways but in terms of just direct uh, climate things it's it's being cold cold is a is a real issue in general the weather is too cold for people to be comfortable and they need to do a whole bunch of things but even even with clothing it's hard to really combat that you really need heating. And thus, historically, people have been so eager to do anything they could to keep their homes warm, or at least semi-warm. And this is, this, this is an example of taking a human flourishing perspective 
on the issue of climate safety to look at, okay, what exactly threatens climate safety and to recognize that nature unaltered is a huge threat to climate safety to then think of what, what actions do we need to take to keep humans safe from climate? And that can't mean, well, let's just stop using fossil fuels and then everything will be fine because for climate, as people experiencing it, all the main things they need to do involve having a lot of energy and for almost for, for everyone that involves a lot of fossil fuels and particularly for poorer people that usually involves even more fossil fuels. So it's just, it's crazy to me that people will talk about climate, climate change, but just in this very abstract, removed way, whether it's in the future or focused on one particular event in the news, but not the reality that people really need to keep warm. And for a lot of people in the world, that's still very difficult. And that's a really urgent human problem. And that's a different kind of problem from that that should really be taken seriously. We shouldn't just be focused on, oh, well, this polar bear is moving from one piece of ice to another. And what does that mean about the global ecosystem? If you're going to care about that, then you you need to care about life as people are experiencing it. All right. Well, I think maybe, oh, well, let's go to your story, Stefan, and then I'm going to give a, a mini review of Michael Mann's book insofar as I've read it, since I promised last week that I would read it and I have not read all of it at all but I have read some of it. But Stefan, what's, uh, what story do you want to comment on next? Well, I've seen uh, Nike announce that by 2020, it will be uh, 100% renewable in its uh, European facilities. And um, so it has been uh, buying power from a future uh, wind farm in Spain by, from the utility Iberdrola, which is a big Spanish utility. And um, so this is another case where a large company uh, is announcing it can live on 100% renewable energy, in this case, uh, 100% wind power in Spain. And uh, in particularly interesting was that Nike on its website explaining this 100% uh, renewable goal uh, says transparency is fundamental to Nike in this goal, right? So, and I was looking at this and uh, it's pretty obvious that Nike cannot run a shoe factory or even an, an office by 100% wind power. It would be, you know, when there's slow wind, uh, it would always be, uh, always go dark. And so what they are doing is they are having a, a power purchasing agreement with Iberdrola. And so they are, buying a contingency of wind power whenever that's produced in a year. And then they are uh, accounting this as their power, although they are actually uh, getting their power from the reliable Spanish power grid, which is, or which was in 2019, which is where, where I got data from, uh, only 19% wind power. Uh, most of it was nuclear, and then also uh, coal and natural gas was about as much as wind power in 2017. And so in the broader perspective, Nike, of course, is manufacturing a lot of its apparel and shoes and so on in places like China and uh, uh, Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And uh, so they still claim that they will reach their 100% renewable goal globally very soon. And if you know about China alone has uh, you know a, coal, a share of coal in, on its power grid of over sixty percent, so that's definitely dishonest and not transparent. And it served the wider goal of claiming that you can live on one hundred percent wind and solar power, but you actually cannot, and Nike cannot, and they should be transparent. Well, to, to play devil's advocate, the kind of pushback that I think we often receive here is that people will say, "Well, look." What's actually going on is, uh, you know, they are at, in effect uh, adding or replacing this much percent of uh, energy use with wind power in the way that these are structured. Uh, well, you could argue that they are incentivizing more wind power on the power grid, but they are themselves not replacing anything because that wind power from that wind farm, when it's completed by 2020, would have produced 
according to the Spanish law, whenever it's ready and everyone else would have to accommodate that on the power grid. But it's not Nike's agreement itself is not the reason why wind power has been built there. And on the other hand, the ultimate goal in this sort of advertisement campaign is to claim that 100% of wind power is possible, which is which is not true. Like Nike, can, like if, if the Spanish power grid was 100% wind, there would be zero seconds per year reliable power. So it's not possible. It's It's definitely a lie, even if it's sort of promoting a little more wind power overall in Spain. Yeah. And so what, what, uh, I forget if you just covered this, but it's like, I think I saw there's, it's just, it's there. I mean, there's so much going on here because there's such a small percentage of their products that are made in Spain as people with all of their sweatshop controversies. I think people should be aware of that. It's not like all the Pegasuses and, you know, Jordans are just made in, in Spain. Uh, the one one perspective on this 100% renewable point is that the, the connection between this and the Green New Deal is important because, and this, this just occurred to me this week, because what you have is the, this 100% renewable, these lies, what they're telling people is that it's possible and desirable to run on unreliable fuels like solar and wind. And the way I've taken it in the past is that it's these 100% renewable pol- uh, lies are promoting renewable policies. But now I'm realizing they're actually promoting 100% renewable policies. So this this Green New Deal, which is just this evil totalitarian policy, is being made possible by Facebook and Nike and Microsoft and Google. Um, forget Microsoft, but uh, Intel these all of these companies that are saying we're 100% renewable they're they're popularizing that very idea and then making people think naturally oh this this is a good thing this should be a political policy so they are they are really enabling the a, a the popularity of a totalitarian policy so that if this stuff succeeds which i hope we can stop a lot of it but that's a lot of blood on their hands. Like people would look back and say, oh, how was it possible that we went through this energy catastrophe and we went from an energy leader to just, a, you know, to just energy poor and, and energy weak. And then it's, oh, well, there was this propaganda campaign promoted by these companies. And oh, by the way, they're not operating in the US anymore because they're, they need reliable power from uh, other places. Let's see. Okay, let me let me jump into this. There's there's no natural segue necessarily to this Michael Mann um, review, but I thought I'd share what I've found so far. So last week I mentioned there was a book that I really liked by Dr. Roy Spencer called Global Warming Skepticism for Busy People. And in particular, I liked it because I thought it did a good job of exhibiting a lot of virtues that I look for when I read People. For example, it explained its points versus making appeals to authority. It looked for the full context. It looked for both positives and negatives for fossil fuels and of, of climate impact for that matter. It was engaging the best arguments of the opposition. It tried to be clear about any assumptions that it was making. It generally had a respect for the audience. And it it did a good job or seemed to do a good job at least of expressing degrees of certainty and uncertainty. I'm saying seemed to do a good job. I, I, I think it's quite accurate, but I'm just saying from a, if I was reading this cold and didn't know anything about it, it, it had this appearance of, of mental virtue, which I appreciate. Now, Michael Mann's book, Dr. Michael Mann's book is interesting and I'm learning more. I'm getting more out of it than I thought. But I, and, and I want to share a couple of those points, but it is really bad in a lot of these in a lot of these ways. Where if he's right about certain things, one of my fears in reading this is he might be right about certain things, and I'm not gonna know because he's so, or most people can't know because he's so unconvincing in other ways because his his method of presentation is so deeply flawed. So. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this in terms of different things. 
in terms of uh, explanation versus appeal to authority, he, he does explain some things later in the book, but the whole beginning of the book is, I find, incredibly off-putting and even condescending. And he'll just say things like, the basic facts are now clearly, uh, and I should say he's he's co-writing this with a cartoonist named Tom Tolls, which that itself is a really weird thing because the book is making these strong scientific claims from expertise. And it's like, well, there's this renowned scientist. And by the way, there's a cartoonist. And we both have the exact same opinion on these things. So that I found weird. But the guy is writing cartoons for the book. The The basic facts are now clear and essentially beyond dispute. It is time to put out the fire. So there's just stuff like that all, all over the place. Um, there's just this kind of condescending tone where there is apparent disagreement or continuing uncertainty. Go with the preponderance of evidence. It's not all that hard. Repeat after us. Preponderance of evidence. So it's it's really unpleasant, particularly at the beginning of the book. I think it gets quite a bit better in that it's actually explaining ideas in some sort of coherent way. But it has that authoritarianism from the beginning. Uh, in terms of engaging the best arguments of the opposition, there's almost zero of this. And there is, in fact, a huge amount of just blanket denunciations of disagreeing people with with no specificity. So here's a typical kind of thing. The purveyors of confusion and denial have stepped in to slow us down and lead us astray. And think of it, who are these people and what are what are their arguments? Let's see what else. Uh, there's a general contempt. There's a, just a general contempt for the audience and a contempt for really, really humanity's use of energy, use of fossil fuels. They, they describe humanity as quote shambling around like confused zombies, unquote. There's just tons of this, and the whole idea is we're just stupid. We're using these fossil fuels for no good reason. There's, it's just we're just being dumb. That's this this whole it, it has this quality of superiority and it's it's just assuming that well so it's it, I find it the opposite of persuasive to anybody who even has questions. Now the most conspicuous vice of this book is the failure to seek the full context. And then I'll I'll talk about some interesting points it raises. But essentially the, the failure to seek the full context, well, seeking the full context means that when you're considering a decision, you look carefully with as much precision as you can and as much even-handedness as, as you can about what are the different potential positives of the decision and negatives of the decision. And he'll talk about climate and the alleged effects of, of warming-induced climate change on things like food and water and security. And reading this book, at least so far, so I'm 18% of the way through, according to Amazon, which probably means I'm about a quarter of the way through because there's a lot of footnotes and index at the end. I would have no idea, literally, I'd have no idea that fossil fuels have any value, and in particular, that they have any value for food, water, and security, which is curious because fossil fuels have revolutionized the availability of food, water, and security. They've just had such a transformatively positive effect on those things. So to talk about a negative side effect of fossil fuels, to talk about the negative of that and not mention any positive at all is just the opposite of logical thinking that we would hope from from a we would hope for from a scientist. And that that is just the most blatant thing as I read this book, that there's no indication, at least not so far of the full context. And there are many, many cases where it's omitted. And then when I see somebody omitting positives or any benefits of fossil fuels, then of course my inclination is going to be, even if I didn't know anything to support this, that they're probably uh, exaggerating the negatives. Just like if somebody can only find fault in someone who's achieved a lot, then I'm probably going to think, oh, this person has a bias and their, their faults are probably exaggerated. So I want to give more of a report next week. I want to continue reading this. I am finding it interesting. I mean, one way I find it interesting is I think that man does a good job of summarizing the different catastrophist views on different things, including sometimes explaining what the different scientific claims are. I don't, it's, it's very frustrating that he doesn't engage with 
any kind of criticism. He doesn't engage. For instance, he says nothing about the people who've challenged his hockey stick in very, very powerful ways. He says nothing to indicate what the basis for their argument is. So everything I read, even if I didn't know other things, I, I have a lot of skepticism. So it's hard to, it's just hard to evaluate, but at least he does have a, one reason I'm reading this book is he is pretty good at giving clear cause and effect type explanations, leaving aside issues with those explanations actually being, being convincing. But that I found interesting. The most interesting issue I found that he addressed was, I guess there are two related issues, but they both go toward what it, toward the scientific method and how he thinks of the scientific method. And one point I would put here is he makes a point about what he'll call skepticism versus what he'll call denial. And there is a, there's a real point here. Let me see if I can, here, I'll read some of this. He says, true scientific skepticism takes many forms. Skepticism takes place in the give and take at scientific meetings where scientists present their findings and then address questions, criticisms, and challenges from their colleagues in the audience. It takes place in the form of peer review. Scientists write up their findings and submit them to journals. The journals select several other scientists with expertise in the field to critically evaluate the submission. If they find flaws in the data, the underlying assumptions, the experimental design, or the logic, the authors must revise and resubmit. This process might be repeated a number of times for a single article. In the end, the article is published if and only if the editor determines that the authors have satisfactorily addressed any concerns or critiques raised during the review process and that the manuscript represents a positive contribution to the existing scientific literature. Let me see if I can find... I might have not saved properly where he talks about the denial thing, but I think I can summarize it pretty well. His point is that that there's now I don't, I don't think in terms of skepticism I think it's a problematic classification I think because it's really what you what you want is challenge based on evidence or lack of evidence so he's he's calling that skepticism which is okay but then what he's saying is well some people are quote unquote skeptical in a way where they'll just they'll just say well I'm not certain of something even if there's a huge amount of evidence and they don't have an alternative view. And that he's right to say that is a corrupt approach where people will just say, no matter how much evidence you have, I'm going to doubt it. And therefore I don't have to take any action on it. And I'm going to say that I'm, you don't have full certainty, quote unquote, and therefore I'm not going to do anything. And, oh, here, here's where he talks about, it. he says, he talks about not skepticism, but rather contrarianism or denialism, the wholesale rejection of validated, widely accepted scientific principles on the basis of opinion, ideology, financial interest, self-interest, or all these things together. And this is what he's attributing to people who question him. So I don't think he's at all accurate in doing that, and he doesn't address a lot of very powerful arguments against him and a lot of questions that have been raised about him. So he's not doing a good job of that. But I did think this was a good point about skepticism is not this unlimited virtue. So that was one thing. The other point that I thought was really interesting was his, and and I think this would be convincing to many people, is his account of how science works and how the scientific community is very likely to come to the, not only come to the truth, but to validate challenges, correct challenges to received truth. So his view is that the scientific community is structured such that somebody who can challenge an establishment view is very incentivized to do so. And he's saying, well, some people think it's it's hard to do this, but in fact, no, it's easy to do this. And so here's here's his um part of part of his explanation for this. Do climate scientists, for example, seek to reinforce the dominant narrative that climate change is real and caused by humans to generate concern from the public and policymakers just so they can guarantee the ongoing availability of government grant support for their work? And then he says, so I like, by the way, I like that as a question, although it's it's framed in a somewhat straw man way, as I'll get into. But he says, the way you establish a name for yourself in the world of science is by demonstrating something new or surprising by contradicting conventional wisdom. 
a record of novel groundbreaking work is what gets you tenor, t- tenure, rather, what helps bring in research grants, what leads to salary increases from your institution. Any scientist who could soundly demonstrate that Earth is not warming would become an instant science celebrity. A scientist who could definitively explain the warming of Earth by natural rather than human causes would have prominent articles published in Nature and Science. He or she would appear on the network news and make the cover of Scientific American. So, well, actually, I, I haven't answered this, but Stefan, what do you what do you think of this claim? I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's not quite how it works because so there there's a a process that uh, takes place in academia where you have to you know publish papers and get them through peer review and uh, get them published in, in journals. And that is what makes you sort of a name, the amount of publications that you produce. And that is not directly uh, sort of correlated to your findings being particularly new and, uh, uh, or, you know, contradicting conventional wisdom, I think. So it's, so the career is not dependent on constantly finding something new or something that is surprising. But rather, it is your career is boosted by, you know, getting as many papers as possible published. For example, well, I don't think that's quite right. I do think that the a newness element is relevant. Like, if you look at what are the biggest names that have been made, they're typically people who publish papers saying that the warming and its consequences are worse than you think. So they they break with the establishment by saying things are going to be way worse. I mean, we saw this, I think, a, a few months back. Uh, with the you know the warming of the oceans is worse than you think. Only it turned out that the calculation had um, a flaw in the equation. But um, I th- there there's something right about what he's saying. But there is an issue of when you have an establishment that has its kind of reins on funding that I think it gets distorted. Like what kind of things are recognized as breakthroughs? But then the second aspect that I think is relevant here is um, what does it mean to prove or disprove? And he had a line, I don't remember exactly what it was, Alex, but he's like, if you could show that the earth wasn't warming or that it wasn't caused by human beings, but that's misrepresenting what the debate is. Like the people who are challenging him are not saying there's no warming or that human beings play no cause. They're challenging them on the degree of the magnitude of the warming and and the consequences. And so you're challenging the establishment not with some uh, over something that is not necessarily headline grabbing and headline breaking, and that becomes a very hard thing to do. So two points related to the, the points that both of you raised. One is that. There is, even absent government intervention, a phenomenon of cliques that develop. Now, an establishment, the problem with an establishment by government is that it often leads to a monopoly clique. But just even if you think about within cliques, how they develop, people who are heading in a certain direction, such as warming from CO2 is causing big problems and requires a big policy solution, those people there there is a tendency for people to look for re, for new and reinforcing claims and that's to don's i think both of your points but don's point in particular and this happens all the time which is that it, and you look at man himself how he made his career which was people were frustrated by the fact that there was this huge amount of evidence that what's called the medieval warm period existed. And there's just these examples of being able to grow grapes where you can't even grow them today and where different parts of the world were warmer than they are today. And man had a, I think they called it Mike's nature trick, but he had a way of compiling certain forms of evidence that um, this is the whole hockey stick thing, which the power hour with Ross McKittrick goes into, but he had a way of, compiling different sources that effectively made that period disappear and made it seem like, well, all of those anecdotes were just totally anecdotal and that it was just maybe in one little part of the world it was warmer. But in general, no, it's been cold, 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 and then it's gotten super warm. And the hockey stick is right. So that is, the hockey stick is a perfect example of a kind of pseudo novelty. It's a convenient novelty. And what you have to look for with cliques and in particular with establishments 
are things that are are convenient novelty. And, and then this particularly connects to when governments are funding it because people are funding this for a certain reason. They're funding it because they're concerned about, they're not just concerned with understanding climate. They're concerned at best, they're concerned about the consequences of CO2. At worst and often, they're eager for power to do something about CO2. And thus they are looking for studies to confirm that. Um, at the really interesting little piece I read by Freeman Dyson at the beginning of a piece by Indergo Kalani, who's a great, you know, great thinker who is associated with Cato, is uh, he has, I think it's, this is with the Global Warming Policy Foundation. I think it's called CO2, the benefits. And at the beginning of it, Freeman Dyson has the intro and he talks about how when government was starting to to study CO2, his view was you can't just study the negative potential climate effects. You have to study the full context. This is my words, but including the positive effects on the biosphere. And he said he wasn't influential back then. And so they took this negative focus from the beginning. And if you take this negative focus from the beginning, even if every single person is completely honest, what you're going to do just by the nature of the system is you're going to select and raise to prominence people who are inclined to this particular way of thinking. And then you have all this individual, in um, invisible rather, destruction of people who would think differently. You never even see them. They don't even go to grad school here or they leave grad school early or often they shut up and they only say things behind the scenes. So it's there's something to what man is saying, but it's it's pretty disingenuous because he doesn't even acknowledge, at least so far in the book, and this the methodology section of the book seems to be over, he doesn't acknowledge the potential corrupting influence of monopoly science. He doesn't look at how this has affected different fields, how science can get distorted, how you can incentivize the wrong kind of novelty. He just acts like, oh, well, if you're a Galileo type who can really, who can really say that the most prominent people in the field are in some fundamentally way wrong, you're just, they're just going to roll out the red carpet. And that's definitely not that's 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 definitely not true even with clicks. But when you have an establishment that is put in place by government and that has all of this infrastructure in place, different funding agencies, different people at universities getting funding, um, then different departments depending on funding of people like Michael Mann and and their research. When you have all these grant proposals that require mentions of global warming and climate change, if they're to have any chance of success, then that is going to be a hugely distorting impact. And it has nothing to do with believing in, in hoaxes or not, but that's just, that's just the nature of incentives. Okay. We are, that was a, a long discussion, hopefully a valuable one. Uh, Don, uh, pick one more story for us and then we'll, we'll wrap up for the day. All right. Well, this is just an update on a story that we talked about, if, I, I think, on the first power hour of the new series. And this is PG&E's bankruptcy. And in, the, in that episode, we kind of talked about two things. Um, PG&E, of course, was held responsible for the California wildfires. And the the blame was placed was placed on climate change and we talked about how that is not the right way to think about it and how in fact policy failures were a major major role and there's been kind of more people looking into this and the wall street journal in particular had an editorial where they highlighted the way in which it was actually the focus on green and anti-CO2 measures within California that helped encourage the kind of policy failure. So if you just think about in general what the regulators of utilities should be doing, they should be trying to ensure that we have cheap, plentiful, reliable, and safe energy. But what they've been focused on in California instead is basically shutting down nuclear and mandating solar and wind. And the result has been that electricity in California has become incredibly more expensive. It's risen by 40% over the last decade and compared to 15% nationwide. And so one of the things that the um, utility regulator, it's called PUC, Public Utilities Commission in California, one of the things they weren't doing was mandating that PG&E make sure that their energy production was safe. 
um, up until I think 2017, they were doing virtually nothing. And then after 2017 started making some minor requirements, but things like insulating equipment and clearing overgrown vegetation and those kinds of precautionary measures were not on the radar screen. And the Wall Street Journal asked, did regulators let PG&E underspend on safety to prevent rates from climbing even more amid Sacramento's anti-carbon spending demands? I think that's a good question. But even if it wasn't that conscious a trade-off, just the whole, if you're not focused on human flourishing as this broad goal that involves a bunch of elements, but you're just maniacally focused on lowering CO2, then you're going to forgive the bad pun, but miss the forest for the trees and like not recognize that there's these other crucial elements that you need to be paying attention to, including affordability and safety. And I think that it, it, it's, it just doesn't surprise me that that would play a contributing factor to a real you know, devastating outcome for Californians. I remember when there was the BP oil spill, that was almost 10 years ago now, nine years ago, and they were beyond, they were the company most associated with transitioning away from fossil fuels. They, their motto was beyond petroleum. And it, it was plausible to me then that, that 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 kind of diversion of focus can lead you to not do your core thing well. Now, th this can happen at any business. I have, a, I have a very small business and most of the people who work for me are on this call. So, But even I just think about with us, it can be, it's hard to focus on everything that you need to focus on. And sometimes people will get overly focused on sales and not enough on customer service. Um, so what you don't want to do is add a whole bunch of things that are uh, ancillary to or even contradictory toward your core mission uh, particularly that put financial strain on you because those are going to be, th those can prevent you from doing very, very important things that you need to do to do the main thing. And I remember I, I had this motto for BP, it should have been beyond petroleum safety because when they went beyond <laughs> petroleum, maybe they went beyond petroleum safety. All right, before we wrap up, uh, so Don, I like that story. Stefan, do you have any more comments on anything today before we, we close down? Yeah, so uh, again with uh, PG&E, I would be curious how profitable uh, the company was before the bankruptcy because what I've seen uh, is that this increase in price of electricity has in California um, led to sort of flattening demand. So the demand growth wasn't you know, as large as you would expect in a, in a growing state like California. And so this can sort of, by this government intervention, increasing the price level and sort of fo forcing um, efficiency uh, or efficient use of uh, this valuable electricity uh, ruin your business model. And this can also impact things like uh, safety uh, spending, of course. So I guess we'll, we'll learn more when there's more analysis later on. Good stuff. All right. Hopefully everyone enjoyed the show today. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I am alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is don at industrialprogress.net. And Stefan is S-T-E-F-F-E-N at industrialprogress.net. If you want to support the show, support the mission, one great thing. Oh, make sure you're on our newsletter, I should say. Go to industrialprogress.com, sign up there. Another thing you can do to support the mission and maybe even help your organization or another organization is look into booking a speech by one of us or one by one of the other great speakers in our lineup. For more information on that, just email Don, Don at industrialprogress.net, subject speaking. Next week, we will be back with several more great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.